0: Well, we are now in Mark, Mark chapter number 4. I want to direct your attention to just one of the verses that was from our reading earlier. That would be verse number 38. So let's look at this. It says, that he, he was in the back part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Look at the end of that verse again. Words that we sort of know pretty well, actually. <clears throat> Master, carest thou not that we perish? And as we ponder that for just a few moments, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll look into today's message. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just are grateful once again for your watch care over our lives. We thank you for your healing power, and even as we call to mind this morning uh, the instances in which you have manifested that, we thank you that Larry's here and feeling a little better. We thank you for watching over uh, uh, the Hanscoms this week with the problem that Jerry had there and the fact that they were able to get medical care and good attention on time and And uh, in an effectual way, and we praise you for that. We thank you for these youngsters miles away in a place where they have uh, problems with the dengue fever, and thank you, Father, that you gave relief and healing to them. We thank you as well for your providing power. Thank you for the great testimony uh, in the letter we heard this morning from Pastor Palmer. Thank you for the way you met that need here through this church and so often have done those things as we heard testimony And Lord, you've blessed us this week, and sometimes we forget about those things and oftentimes overlook those things, but we know every day, every step of the way you've been with us, as we uh, were reminded in Sunday school. And I pray, Father, you'll just uh, reinforce that message and continue to bless us as we look into God's Word here this morning. And thank you now for what we know you'll do for us. We give it to you. We realize that we're incapable of accomplish anything of any real eternal or spiritual consequence apart from your working in our hearts and lives. And I just pray, Father, that will be the case now. And pray that you'll just cleanse me afresh and anew from sin. Give me that, that portion and of the Holy Spirit that's needed to do this job today in a way that glorifies and honors Jesus Christ. Thank you for your people who are gathered. And, Father, we always think to pray that should anybody here today who don't know Jesus as personal Savior... Lord, how we pray you'll keep on working in hearts of that kind and just show them your great love. Show them how Jesus has died on the cross to give uh, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Draw them to yourself. And Lord, even today, we pray that such an one would be awakened to his lost estate and drawn to your presence. And we'll thank you for this. In Jesus' holy and wonderful name, we pray this morning. Amen. Well, we have progressed all the way through one of the Gospels. What do you think about that? They asked him this, this series we've been looking at where we have uh, been entertaining these questions that people ask Jesus. You know, as I've said so many times already, there is so much to learn from what people ask by way of questions. And I've even at at times pondered and challenged you, if you had the opportunity, what would you ask Jesus? And uh, so many people got to ask Jesus questions, and we've kind of lumped them into several categories. We've seen that there were people from all walks of life didn't fall into any particular category, but they asked questions of Jesus. And these are just the ones, of course, that we have the record of in the Gospels. But we also have seen another large category of ones where it's opponents, it's critics, it's people that were not on the friendly side that, that threw questions at Jesus. But it's very revealing about human nature and about oftentimes our thinking processes and where we are coming from. And of course, it's always enlightening to see the doctrine and the answers that Jesus threw out in uh, response to those things, how he handled and fielded those questions. Lots of times it makes us realize how much wisdom we need, doesn't it? You know, I mean, many times folks ask us questions and we're like, "Uh oh, you know, what am I going to say to that? We realize that God can give us that wisdom and But then we see a large category of questions the largest i think of the disciples who ask questions of jesus that is certainly the case this morning in the story that's before us a very well known story and the words in the question are extraordinarily well known you notice the end once again in verse 38 master carest thou not that we perish not only is the story extraordinarily well known but the words are well nigh immortal in the sense that we have a gospel song that has been written uh, with that very title, Carest Thou Not That We Perish. We're gonna actually be singing that at the conclusion of the service today. So uh, we know a lot about this already, but I think it'll help us to have a look at it this morning and see what God has for us. And so now we're at Mark's gospel. And the interesting thing is this particular story that we've read about is contained in Matthew, it's contained in Mark, it's contained in Luke. Anytime you see that, I always think it's important to take note of the story. Not that any story that we have, even if only recorded one time in the Bible, is unimportant. But when you have the Holy Spirit taking the trouble to impress three of the gospel writers, we know them as the synoptics because their gospels are somewhat similar, but they don't always include all the same material and they don't always include all the same stories. But in this case... You have one like that, it kind of makes you stand up and think about it for a moment. Okay, there's something here that God really wants us to get because he's underscored this. We read it three times. Why we didn't do anything with it in Matthew and why we won't be doing anything other than to make a reference this morning to it in Luke is simply for the fact that in the variations of the accounts and in the different details that sometimes uh, one of the writers is led to preserve, Mark is the only one that gives us this question. Everyone else provides all of the context and some of the same words, but not in question form. And so we see it here this morning. It, obviously, this story left a huge impression on the disciples. You get that, don't you, when you get to the end? As it says in verse 41 They feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It obviously left a tremendous impression on them. But I think one of the great reasons that it left an impression on them is the same reason that it should for us, and I want you to know this is where I'm sort of headed to in the story or in the message this morning, and it's simply for the fact that they realized, I think, towards the end of this, as the Lord interacted with them, that they asked the wrong question, and they pointed the finger of blame in the wrong direction, because they said to Jesus, Master implying that somehow because Jesus was asleep that he was unaware and unconcerned and there is a tinge a definite tinge of rebuke implied in that question towards Jesus master get up and do something carest thou not that we perish what's the matter with you it's almost as if (laughs) they ask Jesus and Jesus is supposed to be like some modern day Jonah you know remember the story of Jonah how Jonah we're told in chapter number one went down into the holds of the ship and was fast asleep while this great tempest was upon the mariners and the captain of the ship goes down and he says to Jonah what meanest thou o sleeper arise call upon thy god and it's almost as if the disciples are kind of taking that approach with the lord and by the time this thing is over with they realize that the problem really isn't with an unconcerned and uncaring lord The problem is not with that at all. It's not a lack of concern on the Lord's part for what we're involved with in life. It's, generally speaking, a lack of faith on our part. You notice what he says there. How is it that ye have no faith? I think you're going to see yourself, I know I do, I think you're going to see yourself over and over and over again in this story For that very same reason, because this is so often what we do, and I have to say, beloved, that that in all of the Bible, really, I, I, I love the stories of the Bible. I love some of the great stories of the Old Testament, but I would have to say, if someone made me choose, if someone made me declare, I would say, give me the Gospels any day of the week. I love to read those stories. I love to think about the disciples because I just see myself. They were so human. For the times that they got it right, we praise the Lord and give God glory. For the times they got it wrong, we just see ourselves. And we're encouraged and reminded by the spiritual truth that Jesus so often, so patiently, so painstakingly taught these men. And we have that today and thank the Lord for that. We're going to look at three scenes in this. First of all, there's a great storm. It's an interesting detail that Mark provides for us early in the story. This is in verses, this first scene, 35 through 37. But you'll notice verse number 35 says, the same day when the even was come. So what does that tell us except that there are other events that are involved in this day and we've now come sort of to the conclusion of the day. Well, do we have any way of knowing what that might have been? And and in fact, we really do, because if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, uh, verse number one, just take a look at this. And verse number two, it says he began again to teach by the seaside and there were gathered unto him or there was gathered unto him a great multitude so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. So that if you go go down and continue reading in this chapter, you're going to find that what really has happened in this is a long day of ministry to a lot of people. I don't know if you've ever been involved with that kind of thing before, but I can tell you from firsthand experience, a lot of firsthand experience, that it's a whole lot more than meets the eye. I can laugh at a good joke, just like the next person, and I can even sometimes laugh at ones that may be Have just a little bit of sarcasm in them and are directed my way. But I'll tell you one that I never had much success in keeping a a poker face. I've gotten better over the years, but every once in a while I'd have somebody come up to me and, and say, not maybe not just quoting an old line that was supposed to be funny and we'd all have a laugh, but kind of saying it as if they believed it. Well, you know, preachers only work one day a week. And I was thinking to myself, none that I know. Maybe that's the way it is in your church. I felt like saying, maybe you need to change churches. But I often thought to myself, you know, if that were true, you still have to get to the one day. So there's a whole lot of run-up to that because you don't have anything to say on the one day if you don't do a whole bunch of work during the week. But when you do get to the one day, I I have always felt that really until you do this kind of thing, and, and I say this for you to be of some help when you have your pastor and you've had pastors in the past, this is another great reason to uphold your pastor in prayer because you have no idea. You have no idea whatever, what it takes to get up and do this kind of thing where you're not only involved in a physical outlay of energy, but you're involved in an emotional, spiritual outlay of energy. It takes tremendous resources. And I get many times now, especially at this time in life, I get to the end of the Lord's Day and I feel like, oh wow, I feel like a Mack truck hit me. You know, it's just, that's kind of the way it is. And I remember when Steve Pettit came to our church on a couple of occasions, we had the team for meetings. That was when the Steve Pettit evangelistic team was still uh, in operation. And Uh, He used to say something about Sunday afternoon. He used to say, no nap, no snap. And I thought to myself, you know, there's a lot in that. I, I never have been really very good at taking naps, but I do lie down on Sunday afternoon. If all I do is read, it's still better than if I'm doing something else, you know, that demands a lot of energy. Here's something else that's quite interesting. You could even back up into chapter three. It would give you some insight, I think, into just kind of the greater context, maybe not of that day, but of what this Galilean ministry was like, this greater Galilean ministry, because you'll find the word multitude mentioned there uh, three times. Look at verse 9. He spoke unto his disciples that a small ship should await him on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. So there's the multitude. Verse number 20, and the multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. Well, there's the taxing nature of all-day hard ministry. And they didn't even have a chance to get their lunch or something of that nature happened. And then verse 22 in the chapter dropped down to that. And the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem, said, "He hath Beelzeb-. That's not the right verse. Uh, 32, sorry. Um, and it says here, And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. So do you get some small impression of what's going on here? So I think what for us to capture the human element of this story, and Jesus is, of course, both man and God, so to catch the human perspective in this story, this is Jesus at the long end of a long day, tired, exhausted, simply just needing some downtime, simply just needing the opportunity to get away from it all. And when you find that you get to that place in life, don't feel unspiritual and don't feel that it's wrong because every one of us is that way. The well is only so deep and you only have so much to give in a certain time period or over a certain time period. And we need ways of replenishing that. Spiritually, is very important that we, we find those still waters and those green pastures and find that the Lord can restore our soul. So that's what it means when it says... They took him without any further preparation. In our story, uh, it's kind of an interesting detail. You you read these words and you kind of think to yourself, well, I wonder what that's getting at. Verse 35, in the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. That's what's going on there. But in the next verse it says, and when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, look at this, even as he was in the ship. What do you think that means, and why do you think that little several words got thrown in, even as he was? Because I think it's simply a reference to the urgency of the thing. I mean, there was no time. They didn't take time to get a shower. They didn't take time to get a snack bag or whatever or supper or anything else. It was just important to get away. And so they just left. They didn't change clothes. They didn't get a shower. They didn't do anything else like that. They just left. They just got that same vessel that Jesus was in and started out for the other side. This is why I set the context as I do, because in all of that, here's the point. One moment, all is calm. In the next moment, all is not well. It's totally different. In fact, this is what I think makes one phrase from the Luke account so valuable. I I always see this word. It's one of the few places you find it in the Bible, but we readily identify with it because of a television program. But I'm going to read you from Luke chapter 8 and verse uh, 33. This is from Luke's account. And uh, it says to us here, sorry, it's verse 23. uh, And when they, as they sailed, he fell asleep and there came down a storm of wind on the lake and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy so you can preach from that text and title your message jeopardy and everybody will come the next sunday to find out what in the world are we going to play jeopardy in church but jeopardy was it i mean one moment there's great calm and the next moment there's a furious storm that breaks out and they are in peril Folks, I said, you'll see life and you'll see us in this all through the story, which is why I think we can keep on identifying with this so well. Isn't that just like life is? One moment, it just seems like the breezes are balmy, sun shining outside, no big disturbance really going on in life. The next moment, a phone call, a doctor visit, something like that, and... We find ourselves in jeopardy. We find ourselves feeling threatened. We feel like all of life sometimes can be turned upside down in just a moment of time. And it's because we really don't know that much about tomorrow, do we? In fact, we really don't know that much about this afternoon. We we think we know some things, but in truth, we really don't. And I, I, I found great humor in a particular story because over the years, I've, I've paid some attention to, well, I... I've had some awareness from a different angle than maybe what I first, you might have thought from what I've said, paid some attention. But do you know the name Carl Sagan? How many people know the name Carl Sagan? Okay, several of you do. Well, he's dead, of course, now. But uh, he he would sort of be, Carl Sagan was an astronomer. He was a famous astronomer. Uh, He had the program that was very, very popular, Cosmos. And a lot of people were just enthralled. He, he would sort of be the predecessor, really, to the, the guy who's on the scene right now, uh, Bill Nye, the science guy. And same type of thing, where there's program and all this kind of stuff, and people are, you know, they're enthralled. They listen to all this uh, knowledge, uh, science falsely so-called. And, and, but there is much about science and the universe and all these types of things that, that interest people. But do you realize how often they change their theories? Do you realize how often you know they think they've got this answer and think they've got that answer, and the next thing you know, it was a scientist now believe that's an interesting thing. Scientists now believe, and we're just sort of accustomed to that, but we never really think about how many times they they haven't necessarily gotten it right. That's not a, a dig at science, but this particular story interests me, and I wanted to relate it to you. So, as you know, as you may know, if you've done any digging or anything about Carl Sagan, this is the, the point of interest that I had. He was, he would not describe himself as an atheist. And the reason that he would not describe, I'm going to tell you the reason, pretty much his own words, why he wouldn't describe himself as an atheist. He wouldn't describe himself as an atheist because he said an atheist is someone who has absolute proof there is no God. Well, I, I suppose that he at least he was honest about that. He said, I, I lack that proof. But on the other hand, he lacked any proof that convinced him that there was a God. So even though he wouldn't call himself an atheist, he, he basically lived as one. He lived the practical life as an atheist. Well, on one occasion, this newspaper publisher who was desperate for a story uh, about science in the paper sent a telegram to Carl Sagan. Here's what it said. Wire collect. That'd be almost like somebody telling you in the old days, call collect. Wire collect immediately 500 words on whether there is life on Mars. Now, how would you like to be a leading scientist that's purportedly giving all these answers to people and someone sends you that? 500 words, wire collect. His response was two words sent 250 times, nobody knows. Well, think about that for a few moments. Even the greatest intellects of our days will many times confess we don't know. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, the Bible says, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Not wrong to plan. In fact, it's wrong not to plan. But never with that arrogance that we always know, always with the assumption that we'll do this if God permits, we'll do this because this is what we think we're led to do and what makes good common sense to do, but it's all in God's hands, which is what James said. You should say, if God wills, we shall do this or do that. We don't know. And so life can be like that. It, it shouldn't surprise us that it's like that. It's how we respond to it that's so important. And that brings us to scene number two, which is a great fear. And we see that in verses 37 and 38. Well, it says in verse 37, there arose a great storm of wind and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Folks, if I could encourage you, I realize most folks in an audience like this don't have the opportunity and it's maybe to some extent unrealistic for them but if you ever get the opportunity i mean you're planning the vacation of a lifetime or something like that consider israel the reason that i say that is because it will transform your your understanding of the bible it really will because the bible's tied to a land Pretty much all of the back, the background of the Bible and the things that we read about uh, are tied to the land of Israel. And within the last couple of years, I guess, um, my brother, who's two and a half years older than I am, who's also a pastor, uh, took two trips. So you can kind of figure about the time in life. Well, he's maybe coming out on the, not quite the end, but maybe sort of coming out on the tail end of his life of study and preaching of the bible better late than never i guess but i praise the lord that i had the opportunity to go earlier way earlier i had the opportunity to go twice once in 1975 and once in 1978. you know one of those trips um my brother recently was trying to get me to go with him and i said i just i i would love to more than anything else in the world but that particular trip concentrated exclusively on turkey and i've been to turkey twice which that has a lot of relevance, too, because that's Asia Minor, and that's where the seven churches were, and that's where so much of a lot of Paul's missionary journeys that we read about are. All of that stuff is, is there. Much of it is. But I, I couldn't justify that, so I didn't take him up on his offer. But here's what I'm trying to say. If you've never seen the Sea of Galilee, it's hard to get a picture of this. So I'm going to try to help you understand as best I possibly can. Well, first of all, if I were to tell you, the Sea of Galilee is, is basically a large inland lake. So what's the largest man-made lake in Pennsylvania? You know the answer to that question? It's near here, near Raystown Lake, is the, 30 miles long. It might be 30 miles long, but it isn't that wide in most places, right, because of how it was formed. But the Sea of Galilee is a little different from this. You're, you're looking at 13 miles long and and at its widest about 8 miles. So you can see across. But what's more important than that, That's that's that still may not sound like a really, really large body of water to you, but you're not going to swim that. At least most people are not. Maybe some, but not most people are going to be able to do that. But the geographical situation of it is what's so important because it lies in that Jordan River Valley rift. So the Sea of Galilee is a large inland lake, but which is already basically at just under 700 feet below sea level. When you realize that, and then when you realize, if you were to look at this and see it, but someone can tell you this and it'll make better sense, that on the east, on the west, so this way, this way, that way is north. It's surrounded by mountains. It's steep. Boy, I can tell you firsthand just how steep that is because I believe it was that 1975 trip. We were out, and we were at the Sea of Galilee, and we were just doing a little, you know, had a little off time. We were doing a little snooping around with our cameras and everything else. And I was out there, and I don't know exactly what happened, but somehow I got going forward. And you know how that is when you get going forward and it's steep going down. And I couldn't get myself stopped. That's a horrible feeling, isn't it? And all of a sudden as I was doing that, I looked out in front of me and there was a wrecked motorcycle. Of all things, out there and just kind of the no nothing that much around, there's this wrecked motorcycle. I thought, this is really great. I'm over here in Israel on a, on a trip and I'm going to be impaled on a wrecked motorcycle. I mean, it is steep. And then you've got these mountains that climb even higher on both sides and to the north. And so what happens is all your water coming down into the Sea of Galilee from the north is coming down through a narrow defile, and then it exits at the southern end, and that's where the Jordan River begins and runs as this reaches the Dead Sea miles later. But the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level, so you get the idea of why the water keeps moving in the Jordan River even when it's just a trickle that it keeps moving. So what happens is this, when you have sudden changes in the weather, and we understand something, because we have ridges and mountains around here about thermals and how the, the air moves and all that kind of thing, this air just, it has nowhere else to come except it, it just pours violent, violently down from the north through this, def- this relatively ra- narrow defile <coughs> And it's like a wind tunnel. It just, the speed is just incredible. It comes down and basically it just strikes the surface of a placid, if you if you imagine having on your stove a, a frying pan with water in it, it's just placid. Nothing's moving. It's just no reason for it to move. And all of a sudden, this rushing torrent of wind, which comes from the north, directed straight down at the thing, strikes the surface of the water and in a moment's time, you can have a maelstrom on your hands. The, the Bible is not every detail that we have here is lifelike. It's accurate. It's exactly what happened. And so, it's understandable why these men feared because you're out there and they're committed at this point. Did you ever think about that? I mean, they're not within a hundred yards of the shore at this point, so. They may not have been crossing directly from one side to the other. They may have been going on an angle so that they're over here. Let's say, for example, Capernaum, and they're going up this way more on the northern quadrant. But still, once you're out over that water, it's like you're committed, right? It's kind of like going for the prison ministry, you know. Once you walk in there and they close that door and you hear bang and that lock snick, you kind of think to yourself, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I'm committed here. They were committed. They were out beyond the place that they could just quickly get back to the shore, and they legitimately are afraid in the sense that, and some of these guys, you have to remember, are are experienced fishermen. They they know, but the details of the story are that here this the waves begin to batter the side of the boat. I don't know if anybody's ever been in this experience before. It's not pretty. Uh, it's one thing to face... Into the waves, it's another thing to have waves hit you on the side. Where those waves are tall enough and big enough that they're basically breaking over the sides of the boat. That's what's happening here. And when you read this detail, it says, verse 37, There arose a great storm of wind, a ferocious storm. Waves beat into the ship. Notice the detail here, so that it was now full. This word translated now is the word already. And, and the, the tense of the verb is, is such that we might say already filling. Well, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this before. Sometimes it's one thing to be going forward and having waves break over the bow and take on a limited amount of spray. And a lot of boats now just have the ability to self-bail. But, you know, in the old days, if you didn't have that, you know, you had a can or whatever. <laughs> you know, you, you, know you, you just when you got stopped or whatever, you just bailed the boat. I mean, we're all kind of familiar with that. But when you're in a situation like this, this is beyond any ability, and they realize this water is coming over the sides, it's pouring in at such a rate, the boat's beginning to fill. That's the whole idea. The boat's beginning to fill, and they realize if they capsize, they're done for. That, that's exactly what's going on. And even these experienced fishermen, even these fellows that that knew, they knew it was almost certain death. They knew that if that were to overtake them, which is why they say both here and in the other accounts, they tell Jesus, we perish. They were truly in fear for their lives. And so what did they do? They aroused Jesus, which is good. That's the best move they made right there. They aroused Jesus. But their question is, as I said earlier, one that implies rebuke. See, because to them, his the fact that he was sleeping... I, if anything, I don't think I would. Well, I shouldn't say, but I'm tempted to say they were wrong on two counts. First of all, I would admire Jesus <laughs> because I think you know, in the storms of life, I don't always do such a great job of having so much peace that I can just pillow my head at night and, and get a complete night rest. Night's rest. Of course, when Jesus went to sleep, none of this was going on. But still, it's just something that's alluring to me to see the Master who never doubts, who knows who he is, who's always in control, who never misses a single detail of what's going on in our lives. Able to to sleep, to me, that to me, I admire that. I wish I were there. But they don't like it. It's his idea anyway, right? His idea to get out here in this thing, and here we are out here, we're about to perish, and he's sleeping down there at the, on the cushion where the probably the person who would normally run the tiller, you know, the rudder, since so they didn't have an outboard motor, uh, would be. And he's got this cushion, and Jesus is just fast asleep. And the smartest thing they do to wake him up, but they don't do so great with the question because, and again, this is what I say, folks, I just keep seeing myself. Because they're blaming Jesus intimating to Jesus that where are you don't you realize what's going on in our lives don't you realize that we're in all this trouble do you see yourself because we are so ready to blame God in one way or another when things go wrong in our lives you take the story about the young girl story was actually told by a man that said that he took several trips, a good several, maybe more, four or five trips a year, maybe three, four, whatever. Uh, Air uh, flew several times a year to various places, said that he typically preferred uh, to to choose flights that were nonstop. Well, I can understand that. But he said this particular day he was uh, on board uh, a plane, had one stop, but the the plane, they didn't have to deplane because the same plane was continuing, so that takes... That makes it a little better. Well, they landed the aircraft on the fir- at the first stop, and the flight attendant came over the <clears throat> intercom, and she said, now, uh, if everyone, here's, here's what we would like to recommend to people. We're only going to be on the ground 17 minutes, <clears throat> and so what we'd really recommend is just keep your seats. When the plane lands, we get to the gate, just keep your seats. Let all the people who are getting off here get off, and just stay on board because we're only going to be here 17 minutes. When you get out of here, and stay on time. And if anything, when everybody else deplanes, you're staying on the aircraft. If you would move forward so that the cleaning crew can get in and clean the plane, we'll be underway and we'll be out of here in no time. You, you you can almost kind of hear this announcement going on. Well, there was among these people there were only a uh, there were only 11 of them. And among these 11 people, which they duly complied, they moved forward, the, the people cleaning came in and were doing their thing, picking up, you know, the trash that people leave behind. Among that group of 11, there was a little girl, I say a little, she was 12 or 13 years old. Well, they have been doing this for a few moments. Sure enough, it came it happened exactly like it was all said, the pe- cleaning people were there and so forth, when the pilot actually came out from the cockpit and got involved and was helping to do some of the cleaning, get things ready to, to get back underway. And after a few moments, he walked back up to the front of the aircraft and he, he asked them all a question. He got their attention and he said to them, how many of you have smartphones? Well, <laughs> it sound like kind of an unusual question for a pilot to ask, but pretty much everybody has one nowadays, so they, you know, most of them raised their hands. Yeah, He said, if, would you do me a favor? He said, would you get yours out and just show it to me in your hand? So they all started reaching in their backpacks and purses and pockets and pulled these phones out, had them in their hands. And all of a sudden, this young girl yelled out, she said, mine's gone, mine's gone. And then she looked up at him, the pilot had taken his hand out from behind his back and had a phone in his hand and she said, you took it. And there was a, an older woman, which to me is a picture sometimes of the more seasoned, more mature Christian, sometimes has to come along and put his hand on our shoulder and say, calm down. The older woman did that with the girl, and she said, no, honey, he didn't take it. He found it. Now, it's just so often like that in the Christian life, right? It's, where are you, God. What's going on? Oh, later. And then we're kind of ashamed. Because we realize we've asked the wrong question. It's not that he's unconcerned. It's not that he's unaware. It's that somehow we've allowed the great storms of life that come in to move us away from the mooring points that we need to maintain, the promises and the truths of God's Word, and allow fear to control us rather than faith. And the last thing we see in the story in verses 39 to 41 is a great calm. Jesus' response to them is about as startling as the storm itself. Because he arose, it says. So whether that means he just sat up right on the seat or he stood up, I don't know. But he arose. What he did next blew them away. That's what we're told at the end of the story. Because not only did he speak to the wind and the waves as if they were just old familiar servants, he spoke to them as if they were people. As if they were just, as I say, old familiar servants. Servants, of course, with whom he was well acquainted, which is the absolute truth. He's well acquainted with the wind, he's well acquainted with the sea, he's well acquainted with the rain the hail, the earthquakes, he knows all those things. And then not only did he speak to them, but what he said to them comes out maybe slightly differently than what we get here because over time sometimes, words change meaning, right? So throughout this account, we read about the ship. And to us today, a ship is, the implication of the word ship is larger, right? That when we use that word today, we're thinking of something somewhat larger And these boats were not like that. They wouldn't have even been as long as you take this whole row of pews. I mean, from here to here, they wouldn't have been that long. They were bigger than just a dinghy, but they wouldn't have been that big. So sometimes words change over time and and how they, and what we get out of this when we look at this is, he arose, it says, verse 39, the word rebuked hasn't changed its meaning. We certainly know that word. But it says he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. Well, of course, that to us just almost sounds like a, a mama trying to still a, a little baby and get the baby quieted down. It almost sounds more gentle than it really is. If you take this as the words were meant, but the meaning doesn't quite come across because we ha- how we use them today and over time, it comes out something a little bit more like this. He said to the winds and to the sea, hush! be muzzled. And the reason that you can tell that what I'm telling you is true is because the gentle idea of just sort of, now, now, calm down, doesn't really jive with the fact that it says he rebuked them. Then when you put with that, and I want you to turn back a couple pages to chapter 1, when you put that with the fact that actually this same sequence of words is what Jesus spoke to demons. Then you come out with another thought in mind. Chapter 1, verse 25, take a look at this. If we back up and read one or two verses ahead, just to get the idea, verse 23, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Look at the sequence of words. And Jesus rebuked him. Same word. I mean, same word in English, same word in the original. Jesus rebuked him, saying, hold thy peace. This was no, 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 hush, hush. It wasn't like that. It was as the word rebuke connotes. It was a rebuke. Hush, be muzzled. Jesus didn't want... That demon speaking out and revealing his identity in that particular context. And Jesus spoke to them just like he spoke to the winds and the waves. They're all subservient. They're all forced to do his beck and call. And the response is immediate. See, and this is not like life either. Um, I was asking Brother Bob earlier because I heard someone talking about rain. And uh, Thursday night we had, I think, maybe the biggest thunderstorm this year our way. Thunder was much louder. Rain was much heavier. And I was sitting there. This was maybe six o'clock, something like that, sitting there in the living room. And we had just, we were done supper. And I heard this and was listening to it. And then I heard some things that were a little different. Even heavy rain doesn't sound like this. And I said, "Uh uh-oh, hail. And I jumped up and ran into the dining room where I could look out on the through the sliding glass door on the deck, and sure enough, I'm seeing these things somewhere between the size of a large pea and a a marble hit the deck. And then I'm looking a little bit past that to the left where my car sits parked. Uh, Well, that doesn't look like that's gonna cause any problem, but then every so often, I'd see this piece that caught my attention a whole lot more than the others were. I could tell it was bigger. And they kept hitting and bouncing, and I couldn't really get an idea how big they really were, until one finally hit and lighted, and it was about the size of a quarter. That worried me a little bit. But you know how that storm was. It's like, generally speaking, they all are. Gradually, over a period of time, as the storm moves off, the rain abates, and finally things are sort of restored, if you don't have another one behind it, as they were before. This is not like that. This is like Jesus standing up or sitting up on this seat, speaking to the wind and the waves as if they were old familiar servants, rebuking them, saying, hush, be muzzled. And it's as if as suddenly as the storm came, it's gone. I like that. Because that shows me what kind of power God has over all the storms of life. If God wants to, and this is something that I think we have to really take out of here today. You know, if God wants to, he can make it stop now. A lot of times he doesn't do it that way, does he? That's what you and I would like. We like to say in our prayers, Lord, get me out of here. And sometimes he does that because that's really what's needed. And other times, as we've been thinking about in these Sunday night messages hear a little bit more on that tonight. Now it's a process, and he doesn't always do that, but in this particular case, he does. By the way, I think the implication of the fact that he spoke similar words to the demons is what's led a number of commentators to believe that perhaps there was some satanic involvement in this, some attempt on Satan's part to get to Jesus in a vulnerable moment. Can't prove that one way or another, but it's interesting. It makes a good point to ponder and another reason why jesus rebuked them as he did but now jesus points to the fact that they've asked the wrong question all along the question never was don't you care so we look at our text and as i say we see ourselves master carest thou not that we perish in other words don't you care And Jesus says, you know, the question shouldn't be, don't you care? The question should be, where's your faith? And they had pointed the finger of blame in the wrong direction. So there's a sense in which at the end of the story, Jesus returns the rebuke. Jesus not only rebukes the wind and the waves, but Jesus rebukes the disciples. Why? Well, we aren't going to take time to look at these verses because we need to draw to a conclusion. But if you were to do this and you could write the references down if you want, but just looking at what the disciples have seen so far in how Mark writes his gospel. Chapter 1 verse 27, they saw demons expelled. Chapter 1 verse 31, they saw sickness healed. Chapter 1 verse 42, they saw leprosy cleansed. Chapter 2 verse 12, they saw paralysis cured. Chapter 3, verse 5, they saw a man with a withered hand. They saw his hand restored. And then you have sort of a summary verse in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where it talks about people came with all manner of diseases and problems that Jesus healed and took care of. They saw all that, but they couldn't make the application to their own lives. Hmm. Makes me feel about it three inches tall because that's the way we are all the time we see how God does things we see how God answers prayer you ever discovered in your life how much easier it is to believe the promises of God for someone else than it is for yourself that's weird but that's the way we are That's to me what is so outreaching in these stories that I treasure so much about them. And we're like that. In a few moments, we'll have prayer and we'll sing this song, Master, the Tempest is Raging. I want to tell you a little bit about it first because so often when you read these songs, you can almost sense that something must have been going on in the author's life that produced the song. Sure enough, it's true here. The woman that wrote the song she wrote the lyrics. Her, she didn't write the music, but she wrote the lyrics. Her name was Marianne Baker. The year was around 1874 when she wrote this song. Well, Marianne Baker was left an orphan when her parents died of tuberculosis, when tuberculosis was a real problem, and this was in the Chicago area where they lived. Well, she had, one, she had two siblings. She had another sister, and she had a brother. Then her brother was stricken with tuberculosis as well. Can you imagine now? Here you are. It's already killed your two parents. Now it strikes your brother. She and her sister get together. They didn't have much anyway. They rubbed two nickels together, got the, as much as they could together, and found a way to send send their brother to Florida where there was hope that perhaps he could, a better, different climate, He would he would be able to do better and perhaps even... Some medical attention there, I'm not sure. Probably the climate was the biggest factor, but within a few weeks after he got to Florida, he also died. His sisters didn't even have enough money to bring the body back to Chicago or to travel to Florida themselves. This is what she wrote about that experience in her life. See if you don't identify with this. I became wickedly rebellious at this dispensation of divine providence. I said in my heart that God did not care for me or mine, but the master's own voice stilled the tempest in my unsanctified heart and brought it to the calm of a deeper faith and a more perfect trust. And may God use this time as we spent with this familiar story, as hopefully we've seen ourselves time After time, after time, do that very same thing for us today to remind us to walk with God, to develop our faith, to see him. When these great storms break in life, it has nothing to do with a lack of concern and everything to do with something he's trying to accomplish. And may we be encouraged to trust him through it. Let's pray together.